So I'm excited this morning to continue on in this series that we started a couple of weeks ago, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And like I said a few weeks ago, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most important teachings in the whole Bible, that the very first Christians used the Sermon on the Mount really as a way to disciple those early Christians who were trying to discern how to live out God's will for them in this world. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a block of teaching in the book of Matthew, beginning in Matthew chapter 5. And moving all the way through Matthew chapter 7. And it's been fairly neglected um, over the years, uh, for, for many years. And, and we really want to recover these teachings. And we want to really allow Jesus' teachings on how we ought to live to inform kind of how we live and work in this world that we are living in. And so I'm excited to continue on um, in that this morning. And so, uh, yeah. I invite you to go on the, on the journey with me of discerning kind of what Jesus might have us do in our day and age right here and now. So a few years ago, um, I started, uh, I've been involved in our ministry, Common Good, um, from the beginning. And, and when I became the pastor, I wasn't able to be there every single day in the week. And so what I did is I decided I'm going to mentor one day a week in our after school program. And so for many years, I mentored in the fourth and fifth grade classroom. And I know we uh, have some elementary school teachers here. Um, some of y'all got elementary age kids. Fourth and fifth graders are kind of wild. Uh, they're kind of crazy, but they were a lot of fun. And so every Thursday afternoon, I had the, the privilege and the honor of being able to mentor in this classroom with 13 fourth and fifth grade kids from our community. And one thing I remember, this was a few years ago, this particular boy named Tayshawn was in our program. And... And I always would look forward uh, to talking with Tayshawn every uh, Thursday when I was there because Tayshawn had this incredible imagination. I mean, Tayshawn would talk about some of the wildest things, and I'm like, where did you come up with this, right? And, and he would tell, like, the craziest stories. We would always take prayer requests every day, and he would come up with just the wildest prayer requests you could ever imagine. Um, and then we would always have a question of the day. And so all the kids would go around and answer uh, the question of the day. And one week, uh, the question was this. It was, if you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you go? Pretty basic question, right? A lot of kids were picking, uh, you know, like I think a kid said, I'd go to Chick-fil-A. And I'm like, that's it, right? You know, it's like, I'll go to, I want to go to China. I want to go to this and that. And they would share all these places. Now, Tayshawn, when it got to him and, and his answer, he said, I don't want to just give one, but I got three places I'd like to go. He said, I would travel to an alien spaceship, to Area 51, and also to Mr. John's attic. Not quite sure why he wanted to travel to my attic, but that was his answer. Not too long after that, I was down there in the classroom with him talking, and he leans over to me, and he had this really serious look in his eyes. He was very concerned, and he said, John, when are we going to free the zombies in the zombie room upstairs in the church? And I was like, what? Like the zombie room? What are you talking about, Tayshawn? I didn't know we were keeping zombies in our church. And he said, Laura, which is my wife, if you don't know my wife, uh, Laura is the executive director at Common Good. He said, Laura is keeping zombies locked up in her office. And we need to set them free. And then I realized that when Laura got that office upstairs, the key, ring, key that we gave Laura for some reason 
said zombies on the key. And so Tayshawn had seen this zombie on the key, assumed Laura had locked zombies up in her, her office, and, and we needed to set them free. I think they might still be locked up in there. I'm not sure. You know, as I, as I think about that, I, I just, I think most of us adults, we've kind of lost that imagination, right? Children have this incredible ability just to imagine the wildest things, and they can come up with the funniest and craziest stuff. And, and you know, us adults, like as we get older and older, we often kind of lose that, right? We lose that sense of imagination. We often view the world as kind of set in stone, right? We take everything for granted. We have a hard time imagining new possibilities. As I think about the Bible, um, one group of people in the Bible that I've really just loved over the last few years are the prophets. And reading through the prophets, uh, paying attention to what they talked about. During Advent, we spent time looking at prophecies from the book of Isaiah. And, and these images that we have back here were, were inspired by prophetic visions. And as I think about the prophets, one thing that I see about the prophets is that they had incredible imaginations. Prophets in Scripture were basically creatives. They were artists. They were activists who had these incredible imaginations. And often what prophets would do is they would provoke. They would startle people. They would unsettle people and disorient people as a way to help people to think outside the box to consider an alternative, kind of the dominant way we see things in our world. Prophets were often not liked very much because of that kind of provoking way that they lived in the world, but they did that for a reason, to try to help startle people out of our slumber, basically. You know, one thing I like to do, Laura and I like to travel, and every time we travel to a city, we always try to go and visit like the art museum that they have in the city because it's just a great way to learn more about the city and see some beautiful stuff. And, and some of the art that I like the most is kind of the art that makes you a little uncomfortable. I've been to some art museums and it makes me a little too uncomfortable, some of the art I've seen and experienced, but I always love the stuff that kind of rattles me a bit and makes me think. And I'm like, what is this? What is the, the, the artist really trying to do with this piece of art? It helps spark my imagination. Jesus, um, who we read about in the New Testament, who we worship, who we follow, Jesus was deep in the prophetic tradition. And so in order to understand Jesus and what he taught and what he represented, you have to understand that Jesus comes from the prophetic tradition in the Old Testament, from, from the prophets that we read about, really going all the way back to Moses. Moses was a prophet You've got Isaiah, Ezekiel, you've got Jeremiah, you've got Elijah, all these prophets in the Old Testament. And Jesus comes from the prophetic tradition. He was, um, we could argue, the greatest prophet, right, ever to live. But Jesus had imagination. He inspired people to consider new possibilities, to imagine another way. You know, I've seen... Uh, this scene sometimes in movies, and, and it's always kind of a, a different way it plays out, but you've probably seen this happen in a movie before, but imagine, this is the scene I've seen before in a movie where you have a group of people who are all in this room, and maybe they're around a boardroom table or in the situation room or something like that, and they're arguing about some big problem that they're facing, and they're like, 
The world's coming to an end, and we don't know what to do about it. And they're all freaking out, right? And they're like, we're hopeless. Nothing's going right. We don't know what to do. And then maybe there's some old guy in the corner, and he's just sitting there watching it all take place. And then he starts to speak very quietly, but deliberately and confidently. And he's like, but have you considered this option? You know, and then everybody's like, whoa. You know, they're like, we never thought about that. This is the path that we got to take, right? They were able to see possibilities that others weren't. And I think Jesus, in many ways, was that kind of person. When everybody's debating the current issue of the day or whatever's going on, Jesus had a, a way for coming in and offering up something that no one had considered and offering up a path to transformation that people who were kind of stuck in the old ways of doing things could not see and could not imagine. The Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus' kind of creative work here. He's, he's doing creative theology. He's looking back at kind of the old way that they were taught to do things in the Mosaic Law and in the prophetic tradition. And he's saying, but, but here's kind of the problems that have developed, and so I'm going to offer some things that you can do to try to see some transformation and get out of the ruts that we find ourselves in. And Charles Campbell, uh, the scholar, writes this. He says that at the deepest level, the Sermon on the Mount is not primarily a set of rules or directives. At the deepest level, the Sermon on the Mount is an act of imagination, and a rather wild and crazy act of imagination at that. In the sermon, Jesus reimagines the world and invites the church to live into this new alternative reality. Jesus challenges kind of traditional religion in many ways by showing that just following kind of these outward rules and laws isn't enough. What can happen is vicious and harmful cycles of dysfunction and harm and separation and even violence can develop. And these cycles are evident, really, in, in, in Jesus' teaching up to our text today. I'll just give a summary of some of the teachings he gives before our text for today. For instance, Jesus pointed out that the law forbade murder. It didn't allow you to murder someone, yet people were still harboring anger in their hearts and mistreating and demonizing and dehumanizing each other with their speech and their thoughts. The law forbid adultery, yet men still allowed lustful desire to consume their minds and hearts. The law required men to give a certificate of divorce to their wives, yet men were divorcing their wives for all sorts of reasons, showing them disrespect and honor. And marriage had become an unequal partnership that gave men all the power. The law forbade lying under oath. But, Jesus, but people had been lying without being under oath, right? Living dishonestly with each other, creating unhealthy communities that lacked trust. And so in all these situations, Jesus offers transforming initiatives for his followers to take to try to break those harmful cycles. The world needed prophetic imagination. The world needed Jesus and his message. And I think today we need some prophetic imagination, right? Part of the problem we're so stuck in our nation is because we don't have leaders that have imagination and can think out of outside the box, right, and imagine that maybe there's different ways we could do things. Maybe there's different ways we can structure society so that everybody actually is taken care of, so that everybody has enough, right? Jesus took his people that he was teaching to the heart of the matter with this radical message in the Sermon on the Mount. So this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, 
verses 38 through 42. And I want you all to keep in mind the threefold way that Jesus taught that I told you last week. First, he would affirm the Mosaic law. He would say, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, right? That's an example we looked at last week. But then he would radicalize the law. And when we say radicalize, we mean to the root. He would take us to the root, to the essence, to the values that were underneath that law. And then he would offer some transforming initiatives that his followers could take. And these transforming initiatives are the way to kind of break the cycles, those vicious cycles that so often happen when we're focused on the letter of the law, but not really the essence and the root of what these laws were about. And so I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, and I'll just read off the screen here. Jesus says, you, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. You see, he affirmed the Mosaic law. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've probably heard this text before, and I'm just going to go ahead and say off the top, I, I think that it's been misinterpreted many, many times. And so my hope is this morning to give you all maybe a fresh way of thinking about these verses. So first, like I said, he affirmed the Mosaic law. He says, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Here Jesus summarizes what could be called the lex talionis, which is the law of equal retribution. This law is found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. This was kind of just common sense law. It was built into the fabric of their lives. The purpose of this law was not to encourage revenge or retribution. All right? So it wasn't encouraging you to go get an eye for an eye. If someone takes your eye to take their eye, it's not encouraging that. But it was really meant to limit in proportion, limit your retribution in proportion to the offense, right? So, for instance, Laban's got this nice new guitar up here. If I stole Laban's guitar, he wouldn't be happy about it, right? So maybe Laban takes me to court, right? He says, John stole my guitar. We've got to have some retribution. There's got to be consequences. Now, the law of equal retribution would say that the judge could not say, John, you're going to be put to death because you stole Laban's guitar. Because that's not in proportion to the offense, right? But what they may say is, I've got to buy Laban a new guitar and maybe buy him an even nicer guitar uh, because of the emotional harm I caused him by stealing his guitar, right? And so it was meant to limit kind of the retribution in proportion to the offense. And so you couldn't just be paying someone back for something they did to you with something that's way overboard, right? So as you can imagine, though, many people use this law as a legal way to seek retribution and revenge for a harm that was done to them. The law basically allowed revenge within reason. I was talking with a guy a while back, um, and he told me a story about someone who had lied on his brother, which got his brother arrested and put in jail. Now, he was very angry about that, and he was basically telling me, this person did this to my brother, and so he's, I've got to pay him back. There's got to be revenge. There's got to be something done to this guy to hold him accountable. 
And so his plan was he was going to hurt this guy because of the harm that he had done to his brother. And he wanted to go out and kind of inflict some violent retribution on him. This happens all the time, right? Someone does something to you, you want to do something in response to them. And so we spent some time talking about it, and eventually he, he kind of accepted the idea that maybe violent retribution was not going to solve the issue but could potentially create more problems, right, for him and for his brother. Because what can often happen is we can get into these vicious cycles of violent revenge and retribution. If he goes and does harm to that guy, then maybe that guy comes back and does even more harm to him. And then we know that that can get taken to very extreme and awful places. We can even look at this on a bigger scale. Um, Y'all know 9-11 that happened many years ago in our nation with the World Trade Center and all that. I remember I was in college when this happened. And, and after 9-11, our nation responded with this shock and awe campaign in Iraq where we went and dropped lots and lots of bombs on that nation. And I remember watching it on TV, feeling deeply disturbed by all the images and the sounds of explosions. A violent act of terror was done to our nation, and so we responded with what? A violent act of terror. And has the terror stopped? No, it hasn't. It's a never-ending cycle. And I think we need prophetic imagination. Instead of perpetuating the vicious cycles of violent revenge and retribution, we would do ourselves a favor to pay attention to Jesus' transforming initiatives that he offers in these verses. And there are four of them, and so we're going to break those down. Let me read it one more time. But But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. So he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles and give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow for you. So let's talk about verse 39 for a moment. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, I believe this passage has been kind of misunderstood. And let me break it down. Often there are misinterpretations, I believe. As you start to look at it, you start to see that people have interpreted this in a variety of different ways. And so let's look at this. There are two important words in this verse that I believe might be mistranslated. The first is the word resist. And the, first, and the second word is evil person. All right, It's two words, but it's really one word they've translated that way. Now, many scholars have pointed out that the word for evil person could be interpreted just as evil, so it would be do not resist evil, or it could be interpreted by evil means. And so let's look at this. Let's see how this would change the meaning of the verse. So option one, say we we agree, it's maybe not just saying an evil person, just do not resist evil, which a lot of translations interpret it as. But the option two, do not resist by evil means, really changes what this verse means, doesn't it? The Greek actually allows for both. And so how do we choose which one is correct? Well, I've taught you all before, the way to do that, the first step is to look at the context, right? Look at the biblical context. Well, for me, I look at it, and I'm like, Jesus is teaching this, but Jesus himself actually resisted evil. I mean, that was like kind of his whole point of coming in many ways was to resist evil and to find a path towards healing and transformation and wholeness. 
Jesus consistently resisted evil, and he resisted evil people. He resisted the temple authorities when they were oppressing people. The scribes and the Pharisees, those who were greedy, he resisted Satan. And so I see Jesus resisting over and over and over again. So I'm prone to favor, do not resist by evil means. Now the other word I want to look at is to resist. Scholar Walter Wink argues that this word, resist, when you look at it used in other situations, this Greek word, it's almost always talking about violent resistance. It's talking about armed resistance and military struggles. Violent struggle is what is being referred to here. And so we have a couple of options how to translate the word resist. Option one is do not resist by evil means. The second one could be do not violently resist by evil means. You see those are very different, right? Do not resist evil, if that's how we translate this verse has made people think that Jesus is advocating for passive non-resistance. That you just let all the evil and injustice and all the terrible things happen and you don't do anything about it because Jesus said, do not resist evil. Benjamin's shaking his head no. This is basically allowing the oppressor to get their way. But if we translate it, do not violently resist by evil means, then that allows for resistance to evil. Instead of passive non-resistance, we're talking about active, non-violent resistance to evil. So it's not a question of whether we resist evil, but the question is how do we resist evil? And when we understand this, I think we can better understand the rest of this passage. Because Jesus offers four transforming initiatives that can break the cycle of violent revenge and retribution. These are the means for resisting evil that Jesus gives us. So let's look at the first one. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. Now what Jesus is describing here, a slap on the right cheek, he's talking about an act of dishonor and humiliation. Now imagine someone punches you. Most people are right-handed, so imagine someone comes at you with a right hand and punches you. They're going to hit you on your left cheek, right? And that's a punch. That's a deliberate act of violence to hurt somebody. Now, what Jesus is referring to here is a backhanded slap across the right cheek. Have you ever been slapped that way? That that doesn't feel good, right? It's like it's not always as much about inflicting physical harm. It's more of a kind of trying to dishonor someone. When you deliberately hit someone like that across their cheek with the back of your hand, it's not necessarily about physical pain, but it's trying to communicate that that person is inferior to you. A master might strike a slave like this. A violent father might strike a son like this. An abusive husband might strike a wife like this. The pain was felt more on the inside than on the outside. And so Jesus shows some imagination. He's saying that if someone who is more powerful than you comes and does that to humiliate you, he says instead of hitting back, responding violently, or even backing down and taking it, he offers another way. He says, turn to them your left cheek also. In many ways saying, if you're going to do that, then just hit me. It is a chosen, active, nonviolent response to a system designed to humiliate. The chosen action refuses submission It asserts dignity and humanness and challenges what it's supposed to demean. It refuses the power to humiliate. 
I had the opportunity to go uh, to Selma a few years back and walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And, and this reminds me of all the black and white women and men who walked across that bridge with their held, heads held high, refusing to back down, but refusing also to fight back with violence, even as they were spit on, hit, blasted with hoses, and met with violent words. It was a way to reassert your dignity, but in a nonviolent way, and really expose kind of the degradation of what this act is being done to you. So that's the first offer that Jesus says, this is a way you can respond. Another one, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now imagine you are so poor that you are being sued for your shirt because you can't repay your debt. Like you owe somebody something and they're like, I'm going to take the shirt off your back because you ain't got nothing else to give me, right? This is a person who doesn't have money. It's a person who doesn't have property. So they're being literally sued for their clothing that they're wearing. All that you have left is your shirt and your coat. That's it. Now, the Jewish law actually forbid someone from suing someone for their coat. So they did have some rule. You can't literally take everything. You cannot take their coat because the coat was often the bedding for a poor person as well. And so they're like, the law did not allow you to sue for a coat. And so imagine, though, how greedy a person must be that is suing you for your shirt, the last thing that they can get from you. So Jesus imagines a creative way to resist this injustice. He says, just go ahead and offer your coat as well. Now think about it. They take your undergarment, and you give them your outer garment. What do you have left? You got nothing, right? You got nothing left. And so the image here is of a poor person standing naked in the court before the greedy man who took everything from them. Glenn Stassen writes, in Jesus' culture, that would be enormously embarrassing. It would reveal the plaintiff's greed in all its nakedness. This is an active, nonviolent way to resist the evil greed that leads people with nothing. It's exposing the nature of what's happening here. Matthew 5, 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile with them, go two miles with them. Now, in Jesus' day, a Roman soldier, they were living in an occupied land. Jewish people were occupied by the Roman Empire, and so they had soldiers everywhere, you know, keeping tabs on things. And so the soldiers obviously had a lot of power. And so the soldiers were allowed to force a Jewish person to carry their bags for them for one mile, which was a common practice. We read about Simon of Cyrene. Do you all know this story? Jesus' crucifixion, when he's on his way there, they pulled someone out, Simon, and said, hey, you carry the cross. They had the ability, the soldiers, to force someone to help them carry something for a certain amount of distance. The Jews grew tired of carrying Roman bags. And some groups, notably the Sicarii and the Zealots, they advocated for violently fighting back when they were forced to do things they didn't want to do by the Roman guards. The Sicarii were known for killing a lot of people, and they would violently fight back when this kind of thing happened to try to instill fear in the Romans. But Jesus imagines another possibility. It's not just just doing it all the time and feeling terrible about yourself and being beat down. He says, what I want you to do, instead of just going one mile, go an extra mile for him. Some scholars have pointed out that Roman guards weren't allowed to force Jews to go over one mile. And so going two miles would make the Roman guard perhaps start to feel nervous because they're violating the protocol. 
And so instead of the Roman guard feeling powerful and superior, this act would take them off guard. Warren Carter writes, the subservient has seized the initiative, chosen the action, and made the oppressor worry, possibly opened the way to a different relationship and manifested God's empire. It was active, nonviolent, very creative way to resist when you had no power in this situation. Then the last initiative, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, this is just the reality of human nature, that often when we're struggling, sometimes we can take that out on other people. Often struggling people can turn on one another and start taking advantage of the weaker people, right, and potentially causing pain to each other. And so Jesus here is essentially challenging his followers to take care of one another, to help each other out, to, to create communities of justice and equality. Jesus doesn't advocate for passive non-resistance to evil, injustice, or oppression. He uses his imagination and offers alternatives. These new alternatives that had the potential to shake things up and lead to transformation. And I love, we've just begun Black History Month in, in America. And I think really the black freedom movement embodies these teachings more, perhaps more than anyone throughout history. And, and we have a lot that we can learn from, from that legacy, right? But what they did is they creatively, people like Martin Luther King and others, the black church was guiding a lot of this movement. They were creatively imagining. Often people say that Martin Luther King was a pacifist. That's not a very good description because he wasn't passive at all. And his movement was not passive. It was very active. But it was more what we call strategic non-cooperation because they were creatively imagining Another way to resist evil that didn't involve violence, right? And so it was very active, and it actually in many ways was very effective, right? We still have a lot of work to do, but it was very effective in that moment to impact some change. And we've seen a lot of backlash and a lot of regression, but at that point, it pushed forward. And we need people today, and many are already are, creatively imagining ways to nonviolently resist a lot of the evil that we see in our world, and Jesus, it all, it starts way back, way back with these prophets, and Jesus embodies it more fully than, than anyone, I believe. But this teaching was geared towards Jews in first century Palestine, and so what we have to do now is cultivate our imaginations to imagine what active nonviolent resistance, resistance to evil can look like today. I'm going to close with these words from Charles Campbell. He says, what the church really needs is imagination and foolishness shaped by the way of Jesus Christ. What the church really needs are some holy fools who will help nurture a church that is crazy enough and odd enough to offer a genuine alternative to the violence and domination of the world. Paul in Romans 12 writes these words, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will reap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.